From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, something that's not often discussed, the link between inflation and the job market. Also, why fewer people are in the labor pool, at least the way they're traditionally counted. People find ways, especially in the last two to three years during this disruption, to work in the informal sector. A nice way to say odd jobs. Colorado Springs economist Tatiana Bailey. When she's not crunching numbers for big clients, she thinks about how economic data can help young people. Then a Denver couple finds kinship in Ukraine. What always takes my breath away is just the resiliency of the human spirit when hope is not allowed to die. And that is what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, the friends of ours there, they are resolute. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. What does today's rather bizarre economy mean for you? Specifically, your job prospects, your career. Tatiana Bailey runs a consultancy in Colorado Springs called Data-Driven Economic Strategies. She used to head the Economic Forum at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. And Tatiana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So much talk of inflation these days at the grocery store or energy bills. But I'm curious, is there an interplay between inflation and the job market, Tatiana? There is. More directly, what we're seeing is that because there's a labor shortage, and you know it is more acute in some industries, but it's also, if you look at the job openings across a lot of different industries, that high demand, of course, is creating wage pressure. And that wage pressure, some would argue, is not a bad thing. Some of the uh, lower paid skills and jobs needed to have a livable wage. But the other side of it is that when you already have inflation due to supply side factors, this added pressure of wages uh, and wage inflation is exacerbating the problem. So between the two, it's going to make it pretty difficult to bring down inflation as quickly as we would like. Oh, that's fascinating. So just to unpack that a bit, if you've got more jobs than people to fill them, what will make your job attractive is to pay people more. And that has an effect on inflation, in addition to all the supply chain stuff we're experiencing. Exactly. And, you know, we do have the added distortion of geopolitical as well with, you know, the Ukrainian crisis as an example in that area, creating a lot of the wheat that we need and the grain that we need. You know, there are cost pressures there, too, and natural gas and so forth. So there are some additional factors out there as well. But Tatiana, I want a good versus bad declaration. And when I hear an, <laughs> when I hear an answer that says, well, of course, higher wages are good. I think, well, that's wonderful for workers. But if that very fact means that they are also paying more for bread, I mean, that's a soup, isn't it? It is. And you're bringing me to a really important point. Economists also track something called 
real wages or real earnings. And that is basically the paycheck, but adjusted for inflation. Mm -hmm. So when people are paying more for eggs or meat or whatever the case may be, their purchasing power, of course, is eroded uh, when those prices are higher, even if they've gotten a boost in pay or switched to a different job where they make more. The most recent information available shows that real earnings are actually down 1.8% in the U.S. uh, if we compare to a year ago. And that's where you can kind of get yourself into a little bit of trouble. Well, then the worker turns around and asks for more money. Um, So that's what economists call a wage price spiral. Gosh, it does sound a bit intractable. Uh, You predict the Federal Reserve, which, of course, has been raising interest rates, won't pivot now, that interest rates are going to stay high. Overall, and you've said this, we know there are more jobs available than people to fill them. Is there any way to understand why that is, particularly in Colorado? Yeah. So to quantify it, across the United States, we have 0.5 workers for every available job. I mean, (laughs) you know, certainly I've never seen that in my career. And there are a plethora of reasons for that. And I actually uh, wrote an article about this a few weeks ago. One of the troubling things to me, a couple of troubling things there are the labor participation rate, uh, the percentage of working age people who are out there either working or actively looking for work has been declining for decades. Mm-hmm. And it's honestly more acute for working age men. Back in 1950, only one in 50 working age men did not participate in the labor force. It's a very small percentage. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to today, it's one in nine working age men are not participating in the labor force. And this article goes into detail in terms of, you know, we all, I think, all know about fewer manufacturing jobs. A lot of the men who were 35 to 44 today entered the workforce during the Great Recession. They found it hard to find that first job or lost their first job. And of course, more acute for men who did not have post-secondary education um, or, you know, skills training. Some of those who did enter the labor force eventually during that anemic recovery from the Great Recession lost their jobs again during the pandemic, again, particularly if they're not of a specific skill or higher skill. You know, there's been shifting norms for child rearing and a male head of household, you know, that sort of uh, stereotype, if you will, that's shifted, a cultural shift. Mm. 1990s, we had a war on crime and incarceration. And when those men tried to get back into the labor force, often found it difficult. And, you know, let's not also discount the higher cost of post-secondary education and that, you know, perceived return on investment. We actually have declines in particularly university-level enrollments, and some of that's demographics due to fewer high schoolers graduating, but a lot of that is also people deciding it's just too expensive. And then, Ryan, the only other thing I'll say is, yes, I focus on working-age men and the reasons, you know, working-age women, the cost of childcare. We lost 120,000 childcare workers. Some of them have come back, but we're still down 72,000 childcare workers in the United States. And we had a shortage there to begin with, much like teachers. Uh, and of course, it's very expensive. And even some very educated women make a decision, you know, it's just not worth it. Well, lots to unpack there. So th- the fact is that fewer people who can work are working. You say that is disproportionately true for men. And this has all sorts of causes. What happens if you compare the United States uh, in terms of this idea of labor participation to other countries? I mean, is this like a global phenomenon? 
Well, years ago, I got really curious about that. I, th- I thought, could we actually be better maybe than other developed countries? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of other developed countries have subsidized childcare, you know, uh, a lot of different things, but they also have higher unemployment benefits. And, you know, so I was curious. And I have a chart in the presentations I do, and it's stark. The United States, when we compare to Germany, the UK, Australia, and a couple of other developed countries, our labor participation rate for prime working age people, uh, 25 to 54, is significantly lower. Lower? Would Mm -hmm. we assume a lot of those people then are on public assistance? I mean, I'm trying to, I, I want a better sense of what they're up to, you know? Yeah. And that is, it's a conundrum. I mean, this is something that uh, economists have been, I don't know that we're puzzled as much anymore because there's been so much research and, you know, I rattle off reasons, you know, manufacturing to childcare uh, to, you know, high costs of education, all the different things. But let's also not discount health issues and, you know, substance abuse and so forth, which is really unfortunate. Uh Um, But I think that people also find ways, especially in the last two to three years during this disruption, to work in the informal sector. The informal sector. Yeah, I love how you put that. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice way to say odd jobs. Uh-huh. Um, or, you know, I mean, some people just say, I want to make my own schedule. Um, you know, I'd rather do Uber and this one other side gig where I'm, you know, maybe helping make websites or something. It's a little more of a piecemeal approach to, you know, paying your bills. Now that housing costs are so high, there's evidence to show that people are doubling up, as we call it more so. In other words, you know, maybe three or four people to a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, So people are finding ways to work around this. And, you know, they have some power as employees um, because the labor market is also really tight. One more reason you wrote about recently for why people are not getting into the workforce is they may be getting screened out by hiring software. Explain that for us. Yeah, so that's interesting uh, because especially when I talk to young people, they say, you know, hey, (laughs) I don't know if I buy this whole thing about the labor market being so tight. I've sent out, you know, 300 resumes. You know, they say they, quote, get gaslighted. You know, my kids had to explain to me what that meant. Um, But (laughs) interestingly, a lot of employers say they're desperate, but they want five years of experience. But I think a lot of managers and owners don't realize, too, that there is this hiring software out there that screens by, you know, certain keywords um, or terms, someone's uh, resume. And you think, why are machines looking at this and maybe not giving individuals the chance that they really need to even just get in the door for even a Zoom interview? You know, so I'm... I. I get it. There's also a shortage of HR professionals, but you know, I think that's not helping people, especially the younger cohorts. This is just completely anecdotal, but a friend of mine uh, who has some years of experience is having an awfully hard time getting hired because he he believes uh, you've got this salary transparency rule in Colorado. Uh, where a lot of jobs just say Coloradans need not apply. Have you seen that? Yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, back to uh, you mentioned, you know, Colorado and labor participation. We, we're fortunate in Colorado because we're one of the most educated states in the nation to have a higher labor participation rate because typically higher education does correlate with uh, more labor participation. But it is interesting because the 
transparency rule that we have in the state of Colorado, I have seen even in the quote beige book, which is the Federal Reserve of Denver, uh, you know, surveys businesses, they say that they are hearing that from some applicants that they're not able to uh, find the jobs that they would like. And employers really don't like it. They don't like to have to uh, divulge that information at all. You have started working with the Widefield School District. This is southeast of Colorado Springs to tailor their technical education program to train students to do jobs that are in high demand. Uh, This obviously speaks to some of the trends behind labor participation. Uh, I'm curious what careers you think people should be steered towards. Yeah. So, you know, my nonprofit produces a monthly economic report, which we also do for Pueblo and for a large association in Washington, D.C. And one of the things that I always include are what are the top 10 job openings for the given region? And I think it's amazing to me, you know, people can guess nurses, Uh um, maybe servers, But when they actually look even at just those top 10, there are surprises in there too. And then certainly if you pull that list down to say the top 30, the recurring themes are healthcare, both professional and non-professional, not allied health as we call them, a lot of IT, information technology, coding and so forth, hospitality, truck drivers, auto repair, usually have a lot in the construction and trades and that'll come back, that's cyclical. But bottom line is that this lack of information, why aren't we sharing this information with kids in middle school and Mm. certainly high school to help them make decisions about what their career paths are? How many openings are there in your region projected five, 10 years from now, your region and U.S. and all this information is available. And then also educating the parents. How many of these don't require a four-year degree? And then also, what are some of the you know high demand trainings we can do in school so that an 18-year-old, let's just say, who graduates from uh, an underserved area like Widefield with low probability of going to college out of the gate, uh, how about increasing their skill set while they're still in high school? So enable them to get a certification, let's just say, for Python coding. Yeah, Python coding. I mean, that's fascinating, the notion that job data and job trends might influence conversations as early as middle school. I, I just wonder, though, where you balance the jobs that are available and high paying, like versus a kid's desire to be a poet, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. you sound so practical. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I've, I've been accused of that all, <laughs> pretty much all my, all my life. Uh-huh. Therefore an economist, right? Right. Um, you know, I personally think you can have your cake and eat it too. So I have five kids, full disclosure. And one of the things I tell my kids and their friends, and I've certainly told students throughout the year is, look, if you have a passion for English literature, and you have the means to go get your English degree, do it. But also, let's at least inform these kids of what some of the additional skills are that they can be trained for or certifications that they can obtain or licenses so that they can be more or less guaranteed a living wage job uh, once they graduate. You know, I'm still a big proponent of liberal arts education uh, simply because that's great critical thinking skills, writing skills, communication, and so forth. But why not? 
what's wrong with maybe using up some of their credit hours, if you will, to go out and get a certification? Let's just say that English major says, you know what, I kind of like healthcare too. I wouldn't mind, you know, maybe learning how to be a phlebotomist or oh. a radi- uh, radiology technician. And at least you're giving that 22 year old when they graduate options. That's so helpful. I, I will say that it has been a comfort to me throughout my life that if the public radio thing never worked out, I could become a French teacher. Like, there is something incalculable about knowing there's something to fall back on. And that's what I absolutely. hear you saying. That, and absolutely. You, and how you'd want that for your own kids. Okay, earlier yep. we talked about men. Coming out of the pandemic, the story was whether women would come back to work. More of them mm-hmm. left the workforce at the start of the pandemic. Many... Uh, as we've discussed, to help with childcare, kids doing Zoom school, although those mm-hmm. traditional roles are also changing. Um, how have things changed for women in the past year? Great question. In all of the presentations I do, I have this great chart that I show that breaks out basically return to the labor force, if you will, women with degrees, women without, men with degrees, men without. And all of those categories have not gone back to the same labor participation rate for ages 25 to 44, except women with degrees. So the good news is that even with the shortage of childcare and so forth, women with degrees, by the way, more women are also in post-secondary education now, more university um, attendance by women. But that cohort has recovered nicely. Women without degrees, and that makes intuitive sense when you think about the costs of childcare and you know even childcare centers closing. But women without degrees, unfortunately, are still really uh, depressed, if you will. Mm. They have not returned to the workforce uh, to the same extent. It makes less sense for them economically to return to work uh, if they have kids at home and face the costs of childcare. I think a lot about what it would be like to step into this job market for the first time. Um, what advice would you have? Yeah, you know, um, it's such a common thing that we all think about. And honestly, throughout my career and helping kids out and so forth, networks, you know, that's always been an important thing. And it honestly still is. You would think that with 11 million job openings in the United States, uh, again, you know, back to our earlier point of, uh, you know, shouldn't you just be able to submit 10 CVs and boom, something should hit. But no, that's not necessarily how it goes when you don't yet have the experience or you don't have the networks. And unfortunately, you know, kids who are coming from underserved areas often don't have the networks and also not always the good information in terms of what those high demand occupations or the, you know, the big employers. So one thing I always tell kids in particular young adults is talk to people. If you're, you know, that your dad's best friend, you know, is a banker and you have some interest in finance or you even have like a two year certification, call up. Can I take you to lunch? Uh, Can I come see you at your office? Bring the traditional hard copy, send the electronic copies of your CV. Networking is so important because it's going to be that one introduction, you know, and if you present yourself well, that's, I think, where you get your foot in the door. I'll add to that, which is, Don't be afraid to reach out to your heroes. I have always been amazed by how people will make time for you. If you simply say, I admire you, I admire your work, could we just chat? I want to believe that most people want to give you a leg up. So thanks for that. 
Um, I totally agree. In this day and age, there is always lurking in the background the possibility that a computer could take our jobs. Right now, the buzz is around an app called ChatGPT, which came out in November, and it can write paragraphs and pages of text that are coherent. It can create images and videos that seem real. Before we speak of it seriously, do you want to hear a a ChatGPT joke, one that it wrote? Oh, of course. Okay. Why couldn't the bicycle stand up by itself? Why? Because it was too tired. T-W-O. Tired. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Well, my iPhone does that. So, you know. Can't, can't just blame it all on chat GPT. But, uh-huh. yeah. Your oh. iPhone tells you bad jokes, in other words. Yeah. And yeah. My, my smart speaker will do that. But, but seriously, what does this mean for job prospects? Are, are you paying serious attention to the notion of, of robots replacing us? I am. And I will tell you that it's amazing to me, even having a, you know, a 16-year-old daughter, some of the things that are already out there that, you know, I didn't even know about. And, you know, I'm not a tech expert, but I feel like I know enough. And yet it's just, it's, it's always out there. Now, of course, in the last, you know, few weeks, we've heard more about it in the mass media. So it's being talked about a lot more. But for instance, in those top 10 job openings that I mentioned I have in my monthly reports, I also have L, M, and H for low, medium, and high risk of automation. And this is something that I've included for years now, because people who are, you know, who work in workforce know, right, that that's out there. And didn't the pandemic also accelerate that, you know, with more online ordering and even robots bringing your food to the table? And honestly, if you think about it, there's no way some jobs aren't going to be displaced. I, I just don't see any way around it. And from what I've read, it's both at the low skill and the high skill, uh, you know, because hmm. for instance, with what I do, I look at a lot of data. I pull a lot of data. I format it. And big data is out there. And if we can, you know, if ChatGPT can write its own code to pull that data and do with it what I want, am I needed or is my assistant needed? The number of economists that you need are fewer uh, and analysts are fewer. But then it's an interesting transition because you think about, well, what kind of skills is an economist going to need? Well, they're going to need a data reliability. They're going to look in at the veracity of what ChatGPT is doing. They're going to have to be able to present it and talk to people like I'm talking to you right now and so forth. So the moral there is some jobs are going to go away. But on the other side of it, history has proven that you typically end up with more jobs, not less. So my advice to any individual who isn't, say, a year or two away from retiring, take a look at your job. You know, understand whether it can be automated or aspects of it can be automated. And are there any additional skills that maybe you could glean and train yourself on or get some additional training for in order to be the winner on the other side of this? When we think about the labor market in particular, how many more jobs there are than people to fill them. I wonder if we are married to an old paradigm there. So maybe the question shouldn't be, well, let's plug all those jobs in. Let's get people in them. What if what people are declaring for themselves is, I want to do less work. The possibility of dying by a virus made me realize I need more balance. 
shouldn't the economic system change itself for our new paradigm and us not changing for it? Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I think that's an excellent question because, you know, again, you know, huge disruption with the pandemic and work from home. And like you're saying, that realization uh, not only of some flexibility and so forth, but that whole thing of, do I really have to like live to work? Uh-huh. And, you know, and interestingly, Brian, you know, the mayor of New York City said, okay, I have to roll back my whole thing that workers are going to come in, city workers are going to have to come back in five days a week. Why? Because he couldn't hire enough people and retention was also an issue. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we have this shift now of, you know, ask any woman, I don't want to get ready for work every day and take, you know, 45 minutes to do that and rush out the door and all of this. So it's fascinating to think about the confluence of that shift in culture and technology like ChatGPT. You know, so is the new normal, is our our future, you know, sort of Star Trek where a lot of things are done for us And humans are really just required for putting the work together, if you will, and, you know, maybe figuring out new ways to utilize this new technology. And we don't have to work eight or 10 or even 12 hour days, five days a week. Maybe that will be the new normal. We just don't know what we don't know yet. We won't even touch universal basic income in this context, at least not in (laughs) in this discussion. Tatiana, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Tatiana Bailey, helping make macroeconomics a bit more micro for us. She runs data-driven economic strategies in Colorado Springs. This is part of an occasional series about personal finance that we're bringing you in this new year. And Colorado Matters continues in this next half hour with a Denver couple who will soon return to Ukraine for relief work and their wedding anniversary. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Looming west of Leadville in the Sawatch Range is Mount Massive, an appropriately named behemoth with five summits and more area above 14,000 feet than any other mountain in the lower 48. Mount Elbert beats Massive for the title of Colorado's tallest mountain by just 12 feet. That irked Mount Massive supporters so much that in the 1970s, they piled rocks on Massive's highest point in an attempt to raise the mountain's elevation and profile. But supporters of Mount Elbert promptly knocked those piles down. In 1988, a re-measurement confirmed Elbert as the state's tallest mountain. Though it lost the rivalry for height, Mount Massive is a harder climb. The standard trail traverses a three-mile ridge that connects all five sub-peaks. The Forest Service says it's a moderate to strenuous hike with a 4,500-foot elevation gain along the 14-mile round trip. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Cobol and Company. As the war in Ukraine enters its second year, we're reconnecting with Coloradans close to the conflict. Sarah Davison-Tracy is the founder of Seeds of Exchange, a global human rights group. She went to Ukraine last year to deliver water filters. Her husband, Brandon, a pediatrician in Denver, was also there. A year now after Russia's invasion, they spoke with my colleague Anthony Cotton. Brandon explained the impact that first trip had on him. I honestly couldn't have pointed out Ukraine on a map with 100% accuracy a year ago. 
and that is embarrassing for me, but I know I'm not alone. And all of a sudden, I was kind of awoke to um, people in need, and not just in Ukraine, but all over the world, just happened to strike a chord with me. And of course, because I'm married to Sarah, um, I think I'm a little bit more sensitive to what's happening internationally. And then when she went in May, um, and it profoundly changed her, um, I didn't want to be a bystander at home. And I wanted to be an example for my kids and my patients and um, the people that I work with to be like, if you have a nudge, there's something nudging you, you need to listen to that nudge and that voice. And part of it is I just want to be a partner with my wife. And so we can not have to, you know, we're, we're going to be sharing in the story than just sharing stories. And when I got there, it was as if that was where I was always supposed to be. I'm not Ukrainian. I don't have any family history there. But I felt like a kinship and a brotherhood. And then part of it, that's just the backstory. But when you are there and you are seeing the struggle firsthand, you can see bombed-out buildings on the news uh, till the cows come home, and eventually you just get desensitized to it until you're standing in a bomb pit and talking to people outside that bomb pit because that is where they used to reside and that's where they used to work. That is moving, and that's an understatement. And so um, if I – it's not different than what I tell my family or, again, the people I work with or the kids I take care of. Um, you don't want to be a bystander. If you see something being bullied, you need to stop the bully. And in my opinion right now, Ukraine is being bullied. That's an understatement. But I can't just stand back and let it happen. If I have some kind of skill set where I can bring people together to help them, I can't do that by staying here. Not that – someone has to go to Ukraine to not be a bystander. You can do many, many things besides just going to Ukraine. But for me, I needed to go and see it. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the people. Uh, the need is going to be markedly more than we're even guessing right now, because even if the war stopped tomorrow, the infrastructure is so broken that it's going to be maybe five to 10 years before they can be back to where they would have been. So this is going to be with us for decades and decades and decades, and the war isn't topping anytime soon. So that's the brief Reader's Digest version of how it struck me. Um, but yeah, it changed my life profoundly. When you went, it, it wasn't with regards to your work as a pediatrician. It wasn't. It was no, not directly. You know, I, I kind of went with the eyes of a pediatrician or the eyes of a medical doctor, but I really just wanted to be a hand. Like if they just needed, you know, things loaded or we're trying to get bulletproof vests or you know, I, I'm going to be loading the, the bottled water into a truck or moving the luggage. I just wanted to be an observer to kind of see what my need could be the next time I come. But what I was really struck by is people just want to see you there. They, they just want to have a friend on the ground. I mean, in Ukraine, to have an American come over and just be there to witness it and to say, I'm here to do anything I can – it really moves them the same way if we were being attacked and the Ukrainian came over and helped us. Um, you would just be so moved that they took that amount of time and energy to be there. But for me as a pediatrician, since we were going with, you know, water for all and Viva Blue, um, water is medicine. I mean, if there was a kiddo who was infected or had a, you know, a catastrophic injury, they're not going to do well uh, with antibiotics alone if they're dehydrated. They're not going to do well with a cast or a bandage or sutures if they're dehydrated. That just doesn't happen. I mean, if you live without water, uh, you have the best chance of surviving three or four days. And so that is more of a priority as far as just an essential need. But it's, it's medicine does nothing without water. 
and water is the universal thing we're really thinking about right now with uh, Ukraine and its infrastructure being dilapidated. So I kind of went with that mindset and was shocked at how horrible the infrastructure had been destroyed. I mean, the showers and toilets are being run with salt water just so they can have some sanitation, but you can't drink that. And they consider that a positive. That's at least they have something to wash their clothes and to shower in, but uh, they can't drink it. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. And on the front lines, uh, the men and women there are suffering and drinking melted snow with straws um, and getting sick. And since we have an available tool that can actually help them on the front lines, that's the least we can do and go house to house and everything. Sarah, it's been six months since you were there. It may sound kind of cliche, but do you find yourself thinking about it pretty much every day? Yeah, you know, for me, it never ceases to amaze me how powerful it is to have some kind of personal connection with a place that is in crisis. So for me, with this war in Ukraine, you know, I see the news like everyone else and, you know, have social media stories that will will pop up in my news feed. But there's just something extraordinary that changes when there is this sense of kinship, of friendship, of of building a, you know, truly we feel like these friends have become our family and all of a sudden this cause has become deeply personal and that is an extraordinary motivator to think different and do different because now all of a sudden you know um when we when we see the news we know um that in those cities that we're seeing a news bit about you know there's families, there's, uh, you know, a friend of ours just had a baby in January and in Mikolaj and there were bombs going off as she's giving birth to her baby girl. And that just is an extraordinary. So, yes, we're thinking about the country because the people have just become so, uh, as Brandon said, we've just come to love them with all our hearts. So we're committed to do whatever we can to to share their stories, to do, you know, tangible, practical things to help whatever we can and, yeah, to show up and be available. But helping is what you do. Was there anything particularly different about this experience than the help you've always provided? Hmm. You're in a war zone here where you're typically not when you're in India and Nepal you're not in a war zone. There's not bombs falling around. It's always different because the the people who we are collaborating with and, and, you know, developing partnerships and friendships with, everyone's got their own unique story, own unique struggle, their own unique heroism. And it, I mean, since I was a kid, I've just delighted and basked in finding places of similarity no matter how different we appear in, in that sense of common, you know, humanity, shared humanity, and then finding stories that need to be told that are unique to a particular place, people struggle and be tenacious about sharing those with people so that they themselves can kind of fall in love with and do what they can to make a difference. So, yes, I mean, the country the struggle is unique. Brandon and I are educating ourselves to learn about kind of the historical context of what's going on in the lives of, of these friends and family of ours in Ukraine. So it's, yes, unique, but also 
this thread of commonality when people that are suffering, that have experienced hardship, you know, there's some kind of injustice going on. What always takes my breath away is just the resiliency of the human spirit when hope is not allowed to die. And that is what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, the friends of ours there, they are resolute in hope and in their own sense of we are not going to stop fighting. We are going to it's like this hope in their spirit, but also very practical. They are using whatever tools they have at their disposal to win and to care for one another and to share their story with the world. And that is and was extraordinary and really just captured our our hearts and our, our attention, probably for the rest of our lives. That's our sense. Well, certainly for the rest of our lives, because it's not just – you can't just go and make – friends and see these relationships that are flourishing, you know, in the midst of this crisis and you become one of their family members and not show up the next time you have to keep on showing up. So this is not something we're probably ever going to give up on because they're going to need us and we may need them at one point. But yeah, the the thing is not just that we went, it's that we've gone and we're going to come back and we're going to keep on coming back and keep sharing the story because the Ukrainian conflict, there's already a lot of fatigue in the United States and Europe, especially and just kind of, man, I just wish this would get over. You know, why Why wouldn't just Ukraine just give up pieces of that land and just give it to Putin and this could be over? That That's not how it's going to go. And that's a horrible mindset. Because I understand when you're bombarded with all those images over and over and over, you can only tolerate so much because there's stuff happening here too. And then we just don't want them to forget their story. Because I think helping them actually represents and symbolizes how we can help each other. I, 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 will, I tell my kids the same thing. You're helping Ukraine by talking to someone homeless on the street. You're helping Ukraine by if there's a neighbor that's in need that can't go get groceries because he or she is a shut-in or, or they're not doing very well, going over and talking to them and sitting down and having tea and just getting to know them. That helps Ukraine. That's just this being human. That's uh, humanity. All of that energy put out there does make a positive influence towards helping people in need no matter where they are. I'm curious about something. Sarah mentioned the idea of the two of you educating yourselves, you know, about the history and and the conflict and such. Right. And you're doing this amidst life in the U.S., in Colorado. How does What does that look like? How does that work for you guys? Part of it's just reading more. There's a there's a book uh, that I just started reading called The Lost Kingdom, which is about just basically the, the history of Russia, written by Ukrainian. Interestingly enough, I wish I could remember how to pronounce his name, but it's it's excellent and it's it's very in depth about why Russians might see this conflict in a different way, um, just by history. That's a simple thing, but the more important thing is. Um, I meet most weeks, if not every week, with um, a woman who is teaching me Ukrainian so I can learn to speak it, but she herself is Ukrainian. And she's um, in her late 80s, early 90s, and she has a lot to talk about, but she's part of the community here. So I feel like I have a little bit of my Ukrainian community here, but just talking with her, oftentimes we're not even learning, uh, doing a lesson learning Ukrainian. She's just telling me about her childhood growing up in Ukraine and what it was like and what her opinion is of this conflict and her family that's still over there. We've gotten connected with a really extraordinary community here in Colorado called Ukrainians of Colorado. They've been around for years, and they are very, very committed to um, supporting the 
refugees that have come to to Colorado from Ukraine and supporting one another because every single one of them has friends or family, you know, that their news feeds are very personal when it comes to what's happening in Ukraine and 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 just supporting each other being a half a world away from um people that they that are near and dear to their hearts and so for me when you ask kind of on the day to day how are we kind of fueling this work while we're here in Colorado and and Ukraine is you know long distance away it, for me, it comes down to relationships. Just this morning, I was on a call with with a friend of ours, Masha and Mikolaj, and um, just hearing more about how their family is doing. Uh, we were on a radio interview this morning with a friend in South Africa, sharing her story, and and that for me is is what life is about: is just myself building relationships and and kind of learning from my friends about what is happening in their in their worlds and then doing whatever I can to share. And like you said, most of us are not, you know, highly influential, you know, presidents and, and heads of state. We're just everyday people that, that have jobs and are parents or grandparents or sisters, brothers. And it's like how do we how do we do what we can with the the margin we have in a day to really learn, to do what we can to to care, whether it's donating funds to relief work or uh, volunteering or, like Brandon said, in spare time, you know, reading a, a book that's going to fuel his understanding about what's happening in in the country. Uh, and it, I just believe it all matters. And, it, and if it comes with a sense of uh, deep care and compassion and finding ways to love each other, I fully agree with Brandon, whether it's locally here in in our neighborhood of, of Denver, Colorado, or we're hopping on a plane and going back to, to visit our friends and family in Ukraine. It's all the stuff that, that lights up the world and lights up our own lives. Sarah, when you were on, you talked about like the dinners you shared with, with the people over there. And I, I was curious what kind of the, the lasting, well, for now, because obviously you're going to go back the lasting memory from that trip, what it, what it was for each of you. Was there a single thing that stood out to you? You're going to make me choose one thing. Okay. Oh. I'll tell you the first that comes to mind. The first that comes to mind. There's so, so many. Brandon and I talk about the dozens of things that keep remaining with us. But the first that comes to mind is, you know, our the, the people that were our hosts, translators, drivers, became dear, dear friends all are part of this global NGO called Young Life. So they're Young Life Ukraine. And it's a youth organization, youth group kind of organization. And what I love, loved and loved, because I still see them doing it, is, and it inspires me every day, is the way that they use whatever they have, at whatever tool is at their disposal. So, for example, they have these Young Life, you know, vans that they would take kids, you know, pick them up at school and take them to to club where they're hanging out with other kids in their cities all over Ukraine. All of a sudden, these vans that used to just be carting kids around town, they're still doing that. But now they have this twofold purpose. They're they're loading humanitarian aid into these vans and taking them into occupied zones, into heavily bombed out 
villages and epicenters of Ukraine. And then once they're empty of all their humanitarian goods that they've dropped off in these different locations, then they would load, you know, evacuees into these vans and, and get them to the border to safety. And that is just one. I mean, they also hosted people like us. They're also using, you know, turning their Young Life club rooms into places to store diapers and food and, and you know, things to care for people in their neighborhoods. So what's very compelling to me about that is it's just this practical thing, like what do I have in my daily life that is available to care for, for people in my community or in the world uh, that are in need? And sometimes that is a harder, harder, it's less comfortable to, to ask that question than like the big thing, like, um, you know, going to Ukraine. It's It's more like in everyday life, how can my friends in Ukraine inspire my daily thoughts, my daily actions to look for ways to care for people that uh, are very, very practical and that don't require me to, you know, be a billionaire or, you know, be a head of state, but it's like I'm a mom, you know, carting my kids around town. And, and how, do I, how do I just be that in a way that, that really loves people and cares for people well, because and that is the seed that they planted in me. They do that every day, and they have not stopped, and they will not stop until the war is won and until the rebuilding is complete. Right. And the only, the only uh, one of the memories that sticks out, and Sarah and I talk about this often too, is uh, just being an ordinary couple. The day we went to the front line, we're putting on our, our bulletproof vests, and it's somber and we need to be careful and and we get there and we're um meeting a lot of the soldiers on the front line and teaching them and distributing our water filters and one soldier in particular who was uh, called away to help uh, a wounded soldier on the front line and we had talked to him he had came back and as we get to know him um he's a dentist he's just a, an ordinary guy like the rest of us who's trying to do his best to protect his country and to serve his people. And um, he was thrown into this role as being a medic on the front lines with dental training. And he was gregarious. He was joyful as much as he could be to be in that spot. Uh, he was showing us videos of him before he was in the war uh, playing guitar with his rock band that he plays in on the weekends. And it just kind of really reminded us of just the humanity that we forget about when a war escalates, that these are real human beings on both sides. It's not just the Ukrainians, it's the Russians too. Those are real men and women uh, that, you know, we want to know their stories too. We actually talked about this is not, this is not Ukraine versus Russia. This is really a Putin's um, uh, war. And there's lots of Russians that have different opinions, but it's hard with the propaganda that they read and are exposed to and with limited media. But that reminded me of how important it is just to get to know people and to see faces and to make relationships because it makes you care in a deeper way. And even then, we were talking about um, how it rips these families apart because there are Ukrainians, especially in the East, who they have brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles that are Eastern Ukrainian or in Russia, and they are now separated and they don't speak. They completely um, are cut off from each other. They 
don't agree or disagree with each other, but they are getting different kind of news sources. So there's families that have been torn apart even just emotionally because uh, of the separation of the war. It's just it's it's a lot of that stuff. It's all about the uh, the personhood and humanity of war that we forget about. Brandon and Sarah Davison Tracy live in Denver. He's a pediatrician. She's founder of Seeds of Exchange, a global human rights group. They spoke with senior producer Anthony Cotton about their trip to Ukraine last August to deliver water filters. This year, the couple will celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary with a return to Ukraine. And our conversations with Coloradans with close ties to the war continue tomorrow. We'll hear from Congressman Jason Crow, who's on both the Armed Services and Intelligence Committees. Plus, Ukrainians who are adjusting to life in Colorado after fleeing their home country. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Catch Colorado Matters anytime, wherever you get your podcasts and online at CPR.org. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.